0: James chapter 2, verse 1. This is the Word of God. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. in the eyes of the world, to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin, and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law, and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Amen. We thank God for this, his word. James 2, please open your Bibles and let's pray.
1: Lord, as John reminded us a few moments ago, there's a lot of spiritual dynamite in the book of James, Uh, lots of teaching that can make us feel rather uncomfortable, and we need to be humble as we hear your word, we need to search our own hearts. We need to know if, how and if this applies to us, and we pray that you'll give us the grace to do that, that we'll be learners, that we will be, as James tells us, to hear the word, listen to it, and then do it. Bless us now, Lord, as we study together in Jesus' name. Amen. James 2 and 1 to 13. In the last couple of verses of chapter 1 and the first 13 verses of chapter 2, we're going to look at subjects such as love and glory and favoritism and how they're all kind of related. So here's a question for you. Who and what do you love? Who or what do you love? Now think of all those things, people. Your family, I, I assume, would be high up on the list. The, the church, God, the gospel, these are things that you love. But there might be certain kinds of food that you might say I love, or sports teams, as has been mentioned, or holidays. There's, there's an endless list of our favorite things. And Sound of Music, didn't she sing about? These are a few of my favorite things. We've all got favorite things. And of course, all these favorite things that we have have something in common. They are lovely, at least to us. They are worthy of our affection, perhaps not the affection of everybody, but our affection. They are glorious to us, we might say. Maybe not to our friends and neighbors but they're glorious to us. That's why they are our favorites. And of course, God made us to love things and to love people. And One author puts it like this, God has made us glory-hungry, glory-hungry creatures. We're drawn to it. So we're drawn to glory and things, to have um, things of worth in our lives, to, to find things lovely in our lives. However, sin distorts how we see things and how we treat things and how we see people and how we treat people. For example, we can decide that we're only going to love the lovely and we're going to exclude other people that don't measure up to our standards or definition of loveliness. And we can base our view of worthiness of our love on the basis of wealth. That's a big one. Or education, or success in business or sport. That's what helps us define whether we think something's or some person's worthy of our love. And so our love can very quickly be twisted and corrupted, and we can judge some people as not being worthy of our time or attention. Such people are double minded. They're double minded. They're double minded about people around us. And such people um, love the world's way. They limit their care for, their interest in people based on standards of the world, not the standards of the gospel. So, what have we been learning so far in the the book of James? We are to be single-minded in our love for God. And when that single-mindedness is in place, it it affects how we see people, how we love people, how we welcome people. But, if we allow the disease of double-mindedness to affect us, it'll compromise our living, it'll compromise our loving Here's how David Gibson puts it. Um, his little commentary is well worth buying. Uh, and this is what he says You will not love those you find unrewarding unless Jesus is glorious to you. And if you're looking for glory on earth, then you will love glorious people. You will not love those you find unrewarding unless Jesus is glorious to you. And if you're looking for glory in earth, then you will love glorious people. He's spot on there, isn't he? The double-minded Christian says, that person or that family is not worthy of my love, my attention, or my time. That person or that kind of person. No because I have my select few that I will invest my time and effort into. How do we get to that state? I mean, how could we possibly say, because of where he or she was educated, because of the color of their skin, because of their background, because of their accent, they're not worthy of my time and my love. How on earth do we get to the state that says such a thing? Well, it's when Jesus is not glorious to us. It's when Jesus is not driving who we love. He's not in the driving seat, as it were. We are. The world is. So the world says, "Yo, seek out the successful people just like you or people glorious to you, do that, do that. James says no. And he's going to give us the reasons why very, very soon. He's pointing out the danger of double-mindedness. And he's also, I think, showing us how we might remedy this, fix this, heal this disease. So we're thinking about racism, favoritism, prejudice, discrimination, impartiality, snobbery. It's that kind of subject matter we're looking at today. It's an ongoing human problem, isn't it? And it can slip into the church so very easily if we allow double-mindedness to set the agenda. One of the results of the gospel that we often talk about is the redeeming and reconciling work of Jesus is that we're one with God and therefore we're one with each other. And in the end, of course, in the new heaven and the new earth, there's going to be perfect oneness. There's going to be no prejudice or snobbery or favoritism or or racism. But we don't need to wait until the new heaven and the new earth because this teaching is for here and it's for now. Now, when we come to such a matter, of course, we need to be careful and act with wisdom and a sense of balance because there's always going to be some we'll be drawn closer to. There will always be special friendships in the church. And by the way, that's okay. That's that's more than okay. It is to be encouraged. But what James is dealing with here is something different. He's saying that we should never show favoritism to some at the expense of others or at the rejection of others based on appearance education, wealth, race, or employment, the list goes on. Every born-again believer should be willing and should be able to have fellowship with every other Christian. We've been saying, as we've gone through James, and we'll be continuing to say, it, that double-mindedness is the root problem. And it manifests itself in various ways. Like, for instance, hearing the word and not doing it, that's double mindedness. Ignoring the poor and the needy and not caring for them, that's double mindedness. Letting your tongue be used for carping criticism and not controlling it, that's double mindedness. Giving yourself to the impurity of the world and not to the purity of Jesus, that's double mindedness. And here's another one saying, Oh, I'm a born again believer. But actually, I can look down my nose at people who are not like me. Double-mindedness. It's the problem that James is continually dealing with. And I'm going to tell you, it gets even more uncomfortable as we get further into the book. But good for us. It's the medicine that we need so that we have a single-minded devotion to our God. Let's go down um, through the text. First of all, the fact there in verse 1 my brothers, as believers in our Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. It's a, it's a, it's a command, isn't it? A very clear command. Favoritism is a sin. That's the, that's the fact. To ignore this command is sin, in other words. The suggestion with the, the strength of the language here is that, um, yeah, it's really a problem. In the early church. The strength of the verb is very, very clear. Don't show favoritism. Don't do it. Because our focus is on whom? Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. And when our focus is on our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, well then, we will not idolize the affluent, the achievers, the attractive, the fact is very clear favoritism is a sin. Now, we'll love verses to go through, so we've got to go through it fast. The, the, the example then is given in verses 2 to 4. Suppose a man comes into your meeting, your church meeting, wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, Here's a good seat for you but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, I think we've got used the fact that James uses all kinds of images and illustrations, and here he's got another one. Two men arrive for worship. Let's put it up there. The first man is rich, and he's given a very warm welcome. Um, He's literally gold-fingered, in other words, suggesting that he had more than one ring per finger. You know, so he had all the trappings of wealth, the the white linen suit. hope nobody's got a white linen suit on today. Expensive aftershave, lots of real bling. You know, he's got it all, everything labeled. And he gets the best seat at the front, right beside the minister's wife's family and family, right at the front, the best seat of the house. Nobody's sitting with us today. <laughs> the second guy is obviously poor, shabby clothes, maybe a little bit smelly, undistinguished, unattractive. And what's he done? What's he told to do? Uh, um, stand at the back or sit on the floor over here. Oh, sorry, not over there. I'm not pointing at you folks, but over there in the cheap seats. Are there any cheap seats? Maybe at the back? No, I don't know. But you know what I mean? A very cold welcome. Why? Appearance. The value is put on those two men based on what they are, what they were wearing, where they lived, their background, their success. A cold house for some and a warm house for a certain kind. That's the danger. Isn't it a powerful example? You can't miss it. It's a miserable example because everybody's made in the image of God. Everybody's of value and is important. And James is trying to get us into the single-minded thinking rather than their double-minded worldly standards. And he says, favoritism is a sin and the example is one where that sin is actually committed. And then it goes on. Uh, we're going to spend a wee bit longer uh, in, in the reasons. Uh, there are three. First of all, it contradicts the glory of God, verses 1 and, and 4. Don't show favoritism. My brothers, as believers in our Lord, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. And then verse 4, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts. We, um, when we show favoritism at the expense of some and in the favor of others, we have decided to not prioritize the glory of Jesus in our scale of values. We're choosing a different glory. We're choosing the world's standards we're choosing man's view of things. And so snobbery or favoritism or prejudice reveals the glory that rules in our hearts. Is it the glory of the world? Or is it the glory of Jesus? Because you see, we're made in the image of God. We're hard hardwired for glory. We're not animals that live on or live by instinct. I mean, that's what the animal world does. And very often, of course, humans end up Just living the way the animal kingdom does, choosing on the basis of power and strength and attraction. But we pursue a different kind of glory the glory of Jesus, not the glory of the world. Do you you understand? I mean, we're ruled by the glory of Jesus, or we're ruled by the glory of the world. And if we show favoritism based on wealth or education or background or influence, where we simply say, no, because of who you are and what, what you're like, I will not have fellowship with you, then we are being ruled by the glory of the world. So that's the choice, the glory of Jesus or the shadow glories of the physical world. See, it's double-mindedness again. We keep saying this. And people who actually think this way are nominally following the Lord Jesus Christ, but actually they're following the standards of the world. Because Jesus took on poverty, didn't he? Jesus became sin for us. Jesus displays true glory. And actually, Jesus is the only one who is fit to judge. Notice verse 4. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges? Who are we to judge someone that they're worthy of our time and attention and love? In His church, we accept who He accepts. We love whom He loves. We forgive whom He forgives. That's the first reason that contradicts the glory of God. Secondly, it neglects the grace of God, verses 5 to 7. Listen, my dear brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world, to be rich in in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him. But you you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? And Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? So, yeah, we neglect the, the grace of God when we judge people by the world's standards and treat people by the world's standards. See, in the grace of God, we all come to him with nothing. And one day we will stand before him with nothing except his grace and his righteousness. So how can we show favoritism against somebody who's poor and needy when actually we're no better? Jesus was born of a poor woman, raised in an obscure town at the back end of the Roman Empire. He welcomed us by his grace. We should welcome others in his grace. Now, verse 5 actually is a very clear theological argument. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? If God has chosen his people, how can we exclude his people? It's absurd, isn't it? It neglects the grace of God that we ourselves received. So how can I exclude from my home, my table, my love, my time, whom God has chosen for himself? That's a theological argument. There's actually a logical argument in verses 6 and 7. But you have insulted the poor... Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? In James' day, and in fact, if you talk to leaders of churches right across the land, it is the rich and the powerful who cause Christians and the church grief. Isn't it? In my experience, you know, over the years, it's always those who think they're powerful. And they are powerful in the world. They're the ones who cause grief, most grief. And begins with criticism. That's where it begins. And then it grows to exploiting. The the words here used in verse 6. And often it does end up in legal action in, in the courts of the church, in our system, in the courts of the church. In fact, you know, I'm sad to say, as ministers and elders within the presbytery, we're constantly dealing with problems. And very often they're created by people who want power or who think they're powerful. And at the same time, all of this shows basically just a, a lack of thought to and an insult for the poor. You see, when we have our heads turned by people who are powerful, then we're sinning because invariably they will end up causing grief. It's crazy, it's illogical. In fact, it slanders the noble name of Jesus. Notice verse seven, are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? Favoritism to the, um, the powerful at the expense of, of ordinary Christians is, is, not, is, is not right. It's, it's never right. It's just so wrong on so many fronts, theologically, logically, and it ignores and damages and neglects the grace of God. Now, the, the, here's the problem. The double-minded can't see this, They're blinded. Was it the DNA of sin? Self-deception. And so sometimes, you know, we've got to grab the nettle and say to these people, do you know what you're doing? You're double-mindedly neglecting the grace of God. It's hard to do that in the church. But the double-minded, when they live like this, cause immense trouble and grief. But there's a third reason why uh, this is so wrong and should not be tolerated in the church. It ignores the Word of God, verses 8 to 11. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Now, we have to go through this pretty quickly. The, the, the word is the, um, is the royal law of King Jesus. And we are to keep the, the royal law that he has given to us. Um, and it will show uh, uh, who and how and when and where we love people. The Royal Law is described here like almost like a pane of glass. Uh, one whole law, it's not a, a matter of trying to um, keep fifty percent of the law or take the commandments. you know if you if you uh, have a good stab at six or seven of them, you're doing fine. no, you break one, you break it all. That's what he's saying there in verses uh, ten and eleven. For whoever, keeps the whole law, and yet stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking all of it. For he, he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. So, you, so listen, you, you can't say, I can't say, I will not commit adultery with his wife. I will not murder him in thought and deed. And here's the punchline. I will not value him or devalue him on the basis of a status, position, or appearance. That's what he's saying in 8 and 9. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. The Word of God says, don't reject people. Don't show favoritism against them. Love them. And when we don't do that, we ignore the word of God. It's the king's love, the royal love of Jesus, agape love, sacrificial, costly love. And yet, while we, yes, we have some that we are, just by chemistry, we are close to and friendly with, we do not reject anyone from our time and love and care. See, the double-minded are driven and controlled by human love. The single-minded are driven and controlled by divine love. And that's the difference. It affects everything. It affects how we will treat the widows and the orphans. It'll affect how we seek purity in a fallen, broken world. It'll affect the use of our tongue. I already saw that last. We're going to see it again and again throughout the book of James. This is a big, big problem tongues out of control. We're going to see it, by the way, in verse 12, because we're coming to basically our, our conclusion. Notice what James says there in verse 12. Speak, again, the use of the tongue. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Here again, we see, and by the way, I don't think you need to be Need to be a rocket scientist to see this in reality. The double minded speak and act whatever way they want. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The single minded know that one day the word will judge them, and so they speak and act in a different way, in a godly way. When we say and do Things that are in line with the law, we are free. Freedom is found in obedience to the word. You see that? Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. But don't we hear this? This is what we often hear from people Oh, I'm free. I'm free to say and do whatever I like. But that's why I put that. I hope this is helpful. Freedom is not the ability to say and do whatever we want. It's the ability to do whatever God asks of us. And there's a world of difference. If we speak and act in a way that reveals a lack of love for people, reveals a lack of respect for the church of Jesus Christ, reveals a a distorted view of the worth of people, if we reveal favoritism based on looks or education or power, then we deceive ourselves. We are double-minded and we're slaves to sin and to self. Freedom. Freedom is revealed in the way we speak and act to people when we do it biblically. When we... What we what we say about people, especially Christians, what we say about the church, including leaders, what we say about the gospel, including the theologically difficult doctrines. When we speak and act in line with the word, we reveal our freedom. So I say, I appeal to you, listen and watch and see if people are really free. Because they will reveal their freedom by what they say and how they live or they will show very quickly that they are not free that they are double minded and they will face the judgment of God because verse 13 goes on to say this is this is really difficult this is really challenging because James says because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. He's not saying that we can earn the mercy of God, but if we have received it from God, we will show it to others. And it goes a wee bit like this, and we're near the end. Um, I know it's it's uncomfortably warm in, in here, but we're near the end. If I know I'm lost... If I know I'm broken, if I know that I am unlovely and unlovable in my sin, and I know I need the mercy of God, and I receive His mercy, then I'm going to offer it and extend it to everyone else. That's how it goes. But if I cannot if I cannot offer and extend mercy to others in what I say and how I live, then I don't understand mercy. I have not received salvation. And actually, I will face the judgment of God. You see what he's saying in verse 13? Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has been merciful. Who has not been merciful, sorry. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus, you see, faced the judgment of God so that we might receive mercy, so that we might receive salvation, so that we might avoid judgment, and we are to pass on mercy to others in how we speak and how we live. Who's described with these words? Who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even death on the cross. You see, Jesus died to create single minded disciples. That's why he died. He did not die on the cross to create double minded religious people who do and say what they like and treat people whatever way they want. No. 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 Hallelujah. What a Savior we have. Hallelujah. What a salvation we can have in Christ. And my prayer for me, because this is a problem for me as it is for you, my, my prayer is please Jesus, save me from my sins and keep me out of the power of sin, keep me from the, the influence of the world and keep me from double-mindedness. That means I can say, speak, and deal with people whatever way I like. Save me from it. And help me to be a single-minded believer in you for your glory. May God help us with this difficult, but very needy subject. Lord, Jesus, you did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but you made yourself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. You humbled yourself became obedient to death, even death on the cross, so that we might be saved from our sins, so that we might be saved from double-mindedness, so that we might not just be able to to criticize or speak with our tongues in an unfair and an ungracious way and to act as if we can live according to our own rules or the rules of the world. You did it all so that we might be single-minded followers and trusters in. The Lord Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. Thank you for the gospel, and thank you for the truth of all of this. And we pray that by your Spirit now, you will, you will take us up, and that you will mightily change us. And may we live for your glory. Amen.